standing for for just a moment. Let me share with you, you know, I'm always looking as we come together for worship just for ways and signs that the Lord has got a plan, that He's doing things for us. And it was encouraging to me this morning, and I just use this as an opportunity before I pray to, to allow you just on your own, just in your heart to pray. But as I said, I'm always looking for signs and threads that God's at work among us. And one of those little things that the Lord has just done for me already this morning is Mike shared a verse with us. He said just right before he got up that the song we were singing inspired him or reminded him of in Psalm 119 where it says that, Lord, you are good, you are good and you do good. You're good and, and you do good. And I don't know what that meant to you, but that was like a lightning bolt to me this morning because at the beginning of this week, the first day of the week, always on Tuesday, I begin my week by praying with about a dozen men online. They're part of the 6-4 Fellowship, my prayer ministry that I'm connected with. And uh, we always pray out of God's Word together, guys from all over the country. And we prayed out of one verse this week, and it was that exact same fraction of a verse. You are good and you do good. And I thought, well, Lord, you're beginning that with a week that way. For me, you're culminating, not ending, but culminating the week that way. I think he's trying to tell me something. And since he's telling it to me, I'm going to say it to you. God is good. And he does good. And he does good. And so as we go to prayer, I'm just going to invite you to bow your head. I'm going to pray in a moment. But I want you to think about that reality, that truth, that, that our Lord is good and that he does good. And I'm not going to ask you to pray out loud. I'm not going to ask you to hold hands with the person next to you and pray. But I want you to think about that truth for a moment, that the Lord is good and he does good. And just in the quietness of your heart, invite you to pray really one of two ways, perhaps. Lord, I know you are good because, and maybe as you think about ways that he's blessed you, things that he's brought you through, ways that he has carried you and provided for you. Lord, I know you're a good, you are good because at the same time, because we're not all maybe in a happy place this morning, as has been acknowledged, maybe you're in a hard place. Maybe your prayer this morning, with that same truth, because God's word is always true, that he is good and he does good, your prayer is this, Lord, I trust that you're good even though. Even though right now life is hard, or the week's been rough. And again, I'm just going to give you about 30 seconds just to sort of do business in your own heart with the Lord. Lord, you are good. I know you are good because. And Lord, I trust you are good even though, just as a way to sort of pour your heart out, yield to him, just take the next 20 or 30 seconds just to acknowledge the goodness of our Lord, whether it's in joy or in sorrow, trusting that he is going to, as Mike told us, be with you right where you are. Let's just quietly for a moment go before him in prayer. Father, whether it feels that way this morning or not, the fact of the matter is your word speaks truth, that you are good and you do good. That you've been good since eternity past. You have always been, and as long as you have been, you have been the way you are, and the way you are is good. And Father, the reason that we can say that, that we know you are good, Lord, here this morning, whatever our circumstances may be, that you are good and that you do good, is, is that even if we are in the midst of the hardest trial we've ever encountered, even if we're just living through ordinary days, Lord, even if our week has been spectacular, Lord, the reason we can say that you are good and do good is we have proof, and that proof is Jesus. 
that you sent us your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, you saw our fallen condition. You, you understood, Lord, really from eternity past that we were going to and that we do, in fact, need a Savior. And you were not content to leave us without one. And so, fathers, we've been reminded in our songs and we've been reminded uh, through your table, the, the bread and the cup, that you did something about it. You did the only thing that could be done about it. You sent us your son who died in our place. He paid the price for our sin. He rose from the dead. And, Father, even if life is hard, you are still good. And we give you praise. And, Father, that's why we're here. Father, some of us are here this morning to worship you because you are good, because you have been good to us and we want to give our praise back to you. But Father, others of us are here this morning because life is hard, because the challenges are real and we're here to be reminded, Lord, we're looking for that thread, for that, that word, that something that will assure us that even though life is hard, our God is still good, that he is still with us and loves us. And Father, thank you that you can speak to all of that and more. Father, I pray that even through worship already, our hearts have been have been turned over, they've been softened and opened. Father, not to hear what I'm about to say, but to hear from you through the preaching of your word. Father, elsewhere in, in that same psalm, Psalm 119, it says, the unfolding of your word gives light and it gives understanding to the simple. Father, we readily claim this morning that we are the simple. Father, we're simple people, we're simple-minded, we don't understand the mysteries of the universe, we don't understand sometimes the mysteries of our own lives and heart, but we know we have a Savior we know we have a God who loves us, and we know we have this scripture to teach us. And so, Father, in the remaining time we have together as we now open your word, as we dig into it to see what it says to us, Father, I pray that our hearts would be open. I pray that we would be ready for you, but in a way only you can do, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to unfold your word before us and give light, to give understanding to our simplicity and hope, Father, where we're hurting. Father, for any of that to happen, as always, we need your Holy Spirit, and so we thank you that he's here among us. That's the promise of your word, and we invite him to move in our lives and in our hearts, to come now and guide us in truth, to come and guard us from confusion and misunderstanding. Father, to deliver us from any baggage and any heartache and any distraction we carried in with us, so that in these precious moments together, we might see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And Father, when we leave in a little while, let it be rejoicing because we have been reminded, in fact, we have been assured that you are good and that you do good and that you will be with us when we go from here every bit as much as you are while we are here. We thank you for all these things and ask your blessing. In Jesus' precious name, all of God's people said together, amen, amen. You may be seated. And while you're taking your seats, we'll let the boys and girls head out for Children's Church. If you're visiting today and your, ch your children want to be part of that, they're every bit as welcome to as the kids who are here every Sunday. Children's Church is for our five-year-olds up to our second graders. It's their chance to get into God's Word at an age-appropriate level and get excited about it in the same way we seek to do here. So boys and girls can head out and and uh, the rest of you can take your Bible and turn in it to Mark chapter 4. If you've got a Bible this morning, and I hope you do, turn to Mark chapter 4. And as you are doing that, as you are making your way to Mark chapter 4, I feel like I sort of um, need to introduce myself. I'm not sure if that's the way you feel this morning or not, but it feels that way to me. Uh, my name's Aaron. I've been the pastor here for a while, although it probably doesn't seem that way lately. Uh, we just had a lot of other stuff going on and, and been a long time, at least by my way of uh, seeing it, since we've been together, uh, at least in this portion of God's Word in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, I, I, was, I, was, I wasn't sure, so I went back and looked. It was actually December 10th was the last 
last time we were together in the Gospel of Mark. A lot has happened between now and then, and I'm excited to get back to it and hope you are looking forward to it as well. Mark chapter 4 is where we're picking up this study of the life and the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And again, as you're just continuing to find your way there, maybe reacquaint yourself with Mark as well, um, let me just say uh, how appreciative I am of, of what Greg shared with us over the past couple of Sundays. I hope you were here as I was for each of those messages on discipleship, disciple-making. Uh, I don't know about you, I was challenged. I've been encouraged. Our small group had some phenomenal discussions about it as well. And I think that, that God really used Greg to bring a message our church needed to hear and continues to need to hear and to follow up on. So, Greg, thank you for starting the year out that way for us. Hopefully what we see and hear in the scriptures today will be very much in keeping with that. With that said, we're in Mark chapter 4. Uh, this morning we're going to look at, by the time we're done, my aim, my plan is that we're going to cover the first 20 verses. But I want to start uh, just by reading about half of it, actually the first nine verses of Mark chapter 4. Then we're going to pause and talk about it for a moment before we dig into the rest. If you have your Bible out, I want you to follow along. As I read Mark 4, verses 1 through 9, where this is what the Word of God says. It says that he, Jesus, began to teach again by the sea, to be the Sea of Galilee. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And he was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this, behold, the sower, a farmer, went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil. And as they grew and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and one hundredfold. And he, Jesus, was saying to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, being a native and having spent almost my entire life living in the great state of Iowa, uh, growing up as a kid, I did not realize, in fact, the thought never occurred to me, it never crossed my mind, that not every little boy like me in America grew up with commercials for Roundup Herbicide on TV, <laughs> or grew up hearing the closing market price for November soybeans on the radio as just sort of a, a daily sort of the background noise of life here in this part of the country. Because, you know, even though not all of us here are farmers, in fact, most of us here this morning probably aren't, that is our identity as Iowans. It's, it's who we are. It's what we're known for. It's what we're proud of, even if we've never, you know, walked the field and driven the tractor ourselves. And, you know, I share that with you by way of introduction simply to say this morning that because that's the case, because that's sort of who we are, most of us, and that's sort of where we are from. I'd like to sort of think that a parable, a story like the one Jesus told here, maybe just resonates with us a little more quickly and deeply. And perhaps it does, at least for starters, for other people in other places. At the same time, I also want to remind you as we return to this study of, of the Gospel of Mark this morning, that what we just read in Mark's Gospel 
This story we just read that Jesus told his disciples and others is something of a rarity in the gospel of Mark. Because one of the things I told you, and this is a long time ago, so I don't necessarily expect you to remember, but we've touched on it again several times in the meantime. One of the distinctive characteristics of Mark's gospel is that it's a gospel of action. Told you that over and over again, that it's about miracles and activity and confrontation and, and, and conversation, and, and that even though Mark tells us on many occasions that Jesus preached sermons and he told stories and he gave lessons in, in a preaching and listening sort of context, this is actually Mark chapter 4, one of the very, very few occasions in Mark's gospel that Mark actually tells us what Jesus said, that he gives us the content of Jesus' preaching. Which tells me that what we're looking at here in God's Word this morning is a big deal. Because of all the things Jesus said, if Mark only picked a very few, he must have thought this was really, really important. He must have thought that this was something we, all of God's people, need to hear and pay close attention to. So that's exactly what we intend to do this morning, to, to look at this story in great detail, to try to figure out what Jesus was driving at and why he was saying so. But before we do that, before we dig into the story itself, and before I try to explain with you and for you why he told it and why it matters, I think it'll help first if we discuss something sort of as a preliminary. In fact, it's the first of three things, three sort of big things I want to deliver to you before we're done this morning, and it is this. The first thing we want to see, or that I'd like us to see in God's word this morning is the purpose of the parables that Jesus told. Basically, the reason Jesus, in his teaching and ministry, told stories. The purpose of Jesus' parables. And thankfully, I don't have to do that. I don't have to make something up out of thin air, because in the next four verses of this passage, Jesus does that for himself. So once you've finished writing down that, that first little point, the purpose of Jesus' parables, follow along as I continue in the passage, picking up our reading in verse 10, where it says this, after telling this parable and saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, in verse 10 down through verse 13, Mark continues and says this, as soon as he was alone, Jesus was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, his twelve main disciples, began asking him about his parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. While hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, again, he's talking now to people who know him and believe in him. Do you not understand this parable? And how will you understand all of the parables? Now, in our Bibles, in the New Testament, uh, the meaning, the, the literal meaning of the word parable, the Greek term that Mark uses here for the stories Jesus told, uh, parable literally means or it refers to something which is set beside. That's the meaning of the word. To well, Something which is set beside something else for the purpose of, of making a point, of, uh, of drawing an analogy, of, of giving illustration. A parable is something set beside or set in the context of something else in order to prove or to deliver a point. Now, in the New Testament... And particularly in the teaching of Jesus, parables were stories. They weren't always stories, but with Jesus, most of the time, they were. And, and the idea of Jesus' stories, the parables Jesus told, wasn't merely to keep the audience awake. That's why I tell stories when I'm preaching. That's not why Jesus told stories, though, when he was preaching. He was doing it more than just to capture people's attention. No, every time Jesus told a story, gave a parable, 
He was doing it in one way or another to press the people listening to him to a point of decision. It's as if he would say, although he didn't have to say, I'm going to tell you a story and then I'm going to force you to decide what you're going to do with it. Or I'm going to compel you or invite you to decide what to do with it. In a sense, what I'm saying is this. The parables of Jesus were his way of saying, so what? So what? What are you going to do? Listener, man, woman, young person, with what it is you've just heard me say. And if you look closely at verses 11 and 12, what you see is is Jesus made it clear in this context that not everyone who heard his parables was going to respond the same way, was going to have the same sort of heart attitude response to it. Look again at what he says in those two verses. He was saying to them, to you, to those who know me, has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those outside get everything in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they'd repent of their sins, and they'd be forgiven. Now, when Jesus talks there, and this is important because he's going to come back to this language several times in the rest of this chapter and, and moving forward in Mark's gospel. When Jesus talks about the mystery, or your Bible may say the secret of the kingdom of God, What he's talking about, there's really sort of a massive concept there. I'm going to really kind of whittle it down to simplicity. But when Jesus talks about the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of God, he is talking about the fact that in him, the rule and the reign of God has come to us. That God's kingdom in in him is among us, and correspondingly, the offer of salvation. Basically, Jesus is saying, I'm here, I'm here for a reason, and it's a really, really big deal. God has come to reveal himself and to, to offer his kingdom and the way into it to you through me. That's the mystery of the kingdom of God. And while it kind of sort of, look again at verse 12, it kind of sort of sounds like what Jesus is saying is is that he's come to to, to sort of offer that, extending, extend that offer of the kingdom to some, and that he's sort of like deliberately withholding it from others. Doesn't it kind of look that way in verse 12? That's not what he's saying. At least that's not the point he's trying to make. Because remember something else, again, a lot of review this morning, okay, because it's been a long time, but, but I want you to remember something else that we have seen really in, in living color in Mark's gospel so far. And that is that already by this point, chapter 4 of, of Mark's entire gospel, we have seen that, that among those who would come to listen to Jesus and interact with Jesus was a small but growing and very vocal group of people who opposed him at every turn. It was primarily the Jewish religious establishment, but it was composed of of others as well. That as Jesus went around preaching and teaching and doing his thing, they were there to say, not so fast. In fact, you may not remember this, but the last time we were together in Mark's gospel, back in December, we saw that already by this point in his ministry, that group of people was conspiring to put him to death. They didn't want to just shut him up. They wanted to kill him already at this point. And, and they certainly, some of those would have been present to the large, in the larger group when he gave this parable just a little bit earlier that same day. And, and so, what, excuse me, what Jesus is really saying here, his message, is that when that kind of a person and, and any others who didn't yet believe in him, when they heard his parables and the stories that, that he was telling, that, that they'd see but not perceive, and they'd hear but not understand. Because if they did see what he was really saying and doing, and they really did understand uh, the words that he was speaking, what would they do? They'd repent. They'd believe as this inner circle of others already had. In other words, what Jesus said, if I understand this correctly, what Jesus is really saying here in verse 12 
is the reason they don't get it is because they have unbelieving hearts. They are resisting and rejecting the message of the gospel. And as we're going to see next, that message, that not everyone who heard Jesus speak responded to what he said in the same way. That is what this particular parable, often called the parable of the sower, was all about. And that's the second thing I want to show you this morning, and really sort of the main thing I want to show you this morning here. First of all, we've got to understand the purpose of, of Jesus' parables. He's told stories. He gave parables to press people to points of decision. What are you going to do with what I've just said, with what you've just heard? Now, in this particular instance, the second thing I want you to see is the point of this parable. What was Jesus driving at here? What kind of decision or response was he seeking from those who heard him? And again, you don't need me necessarily to interpret the parable because in the rest of the passage, Jesus does it for himself. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to follow along with me as I pick it up now where we left off in verse 14 and go all the way down through the end of verse 20 where Jesus himself explains what he just said. Again, in verse 13, he said, don't you understand this parable? How will you not understand all the parables? Here's what I want you to know about it, Jesus said. Verse 14, the sower, the farmer, is sowing the word. And these are, now reviewing the the four kinds of soil he talked about, he spoke of at the beginning when he told this story. Here's what he says. These are, first of all, are the ones who were beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these, sort of his second group, are ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. These are people who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but they have no firm root in themselves. They are only temporary. It's only temporary. And then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Others, group three, are are those, are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And then finally, verse 20, are those, the last group, are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30, 60 100-fold. You know, one of the things that amazes me most about the teaching of Jesus, and the reason it amazes me is because I struggle so mightily with it myself as a preacher and a teacher, is how Jesus could make such massive points with such few words, right? I mean, think about what I just read to you there. Jesus' entire interpretation of his parable took like 60 seconds, right? And the whole thing, if we're paying attention, is out there on the table ready for us to respond to. And it just kills me that he can use so few words to say such important things. And, 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 but, but at the same time, here's what he's saying, because we need to walk through it. We're going to take our time to walk through it with a little more detail so we are sure that no one misses none of us, myself included, what it is he's trying to say. Because in verse 14, let's just start there and walk through it a verse or two at a time. In verse 14, when Jesus said, the sower, the farmer, the guy I'm talking about, illustrating in this parable, in this story, sows the word. What Jesus was doing was this, and this is where we need some explanation because things were different in those days. And his audience, because they were from agricultural country, would have immediately understood it, but we may not. Here's what he was saying or referring to. He was referring to the common farming practice of his day. This is very different than the way we do things today of a farmer who would go out to his field 
And he would have a basket of seed, whatever it is he's going to plant, corn or wheat or whatever else it is they plant in the Middle East. And he would carry that basket in one arm. And then with the other hand, as he walked across his field, his property, he would scoop in to that basket of seed, that bucket of seed, and he would just broadcast spread it across all the land, sort of indiscriminately, but very thoroughly across his whole field or acreage or whatever it is that he had. Then afterwards, after scattering the seed on the top of the soil, then afterwards he would come with his plow and plow it into the ground. That's just the way they did things in those days. And when Jesus said the sower sows the word, everybody knew what he was talking about. Oh, that kind of farming. That's what Jesus means. And in giving them that illustration, what Jesus was saying is that that is what, exactly what he or, or anyone else, whoever preaches or teaches or explains the gospel to others, whether it's something like this or in a Sunday school class or a small group Bible study or whatever else, that anytime someone uh, speaks the word of God to others, that's exactly what they're doing. They're casting seed on the soil. They're casting the seed of God's word. And the reason that analogy for Jesus works so well is because, again, and it's happening right now. This is such a weird thing to be preaching about exactly what I'm doing, but bear with me and I'll try to get through it. Because well, it's exactly what's happening right now. As we, as I, speak to you from, the God, from God's word, however clearly or unclearly I may be doing so, you're all hearing the same words come out of my mouth. Everybody's hearing me say the same thing. The words aren't any different to you or the person next to you, but... Not everybody's responding to them or grappling with them the same way. And what Jesus says is this, is every time the word of God is proclaimed, every time specifically the gospel message of salvation is preached among those listening to it, he said there are four kinds of soil, there are four kinds of hearts. First of all, he says there's hard soil, and, and that would be representative, let me just give you the analogies real quickly, hard hearts. Because every time God's word is spoken, uh, the possibility, the potential, probably in fact the reality, is that there is hard soil that is people with hard hearts in attendance. Verse 15, these are the ones who are beside the road. Now, beside the road, this is where everybody walks. So the soil is very hard, the path is very, uh, very difficult to get beneath the surface. And he says, when the word is sown, they hear it, but immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. What's Jesus talking about there? He's talking about people who were at, at best indifferent and at worst hostile to the preaching of the truth of God's word. He says there are going to be people in attendance, some who are, in fact, openly hostile and resistant to it. I don't want to hear about your God. I don't want to hear about Jesus. I don't want to hear about the Bible. As well as people who may be in a, a more subtle or, or a less uh, a hostile sort of way who may sadly sit in a place like this, in a room, maybe in this room, week after week after week after week hearing the preaching and the proclamation of God's word, but simply waiting for the service to get over. They're indifferent. It's hard soil. Jesus said every time the word is scattered and sown, the possibility for such hearts in attendance, hard hearts is, is a reality. This is hard soil. Secondly, Jesus said there's rocky soil, that every time the sower, the preacher of God's word, proclaims his word, the potential for rocky soil is there as well. And, and I would say that rocky soil is really a, a picture, an image of shallow hearts, what I would term shallow hearts, verses 16 and 17. Again, in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on rocky places. What kind of person are we talking about? Jesus says, he says, that's the kind of man, woman, or young person who when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But they have no firm root in themselves. It's only, they're only temporary. 
And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. This is the kind of person, and sadly, I've seen this often. This is the kind of person who, who in the moment, maybe they specifically hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a believer who hears a teaching from God's word that's fresh or new, opening their eyes to something they hadn't seen in the scriptures before. And in the moment, there is some sort of immediate emotional response, right? There's tears, or there's joy, or there's conviction, or, or there's sort of contemplation. But, but the emotions get engaged, and, and our hearts get involved, and we get all fired up and excited, but then the call comes to move forward. Monday morning rolls around, right? Maybe adversity comes. Look at specifically, Jesus said, when, when hardship or persecution arises because of the word, that is, I go home and not everybody in my house agrees with what I'm all fired up about. And the joy goes away. The emotion passes. And it's business as usual. That was fun on Sunday, but, but life is hard. Jesus said that's rocky soil. The possibility when the word is preached is that some of us can have shallow hearts. Hard soil, hard hearts, rocky soil, shallow hearts. 30 talks about thorny soil. And what he's talking about there, I believe, could be properly termed cluttered hearts, crowded or cluttered hearts. Again, here's what Jesus says, beginning in verse 18. These are the ones in whom the seed was sown among thorns. That's people who hear the word. But the worries of the world the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in and choke it out. And it becomes unfruitful. You know, as I read and reread those verses this week, I thought, could anything better describe the day and the place in which we live? Anxiety, fear, worry, materialism, lust, covetousness, comparison, longings for things. Listen, I'm, I, I may be wrong, but I think I'm right when I say that at least one of those things on that list is something you and I grapple with every single day. It's going to be different from you for the person next to you. But, but this is our life, right? This is the world we live in. This is the stuff that we battle against and, and that competes with as a result. And when we think about it, we probably know it's true. And it competes with and oftentimes chokes out our devotion to Jesus Christ. And as I read that, I thought, this is the, the man or the woman or the young person. And I've been there many, many times, and I'm sure I will be again, who says, you know, uh, what I really need in life is Jesus and fill in the blank. I'll be good if I can have Jesus and that promotion, right? I'll be good if I can have Jesus and that addition we really want to build, and that, that'll be good. If, if I could have Jesus' hand, that's someone I've had my eye on. That's something I've been longing for. Or maybe at a, at a, at a deeper, more internal level, it's, it's, yeah, I love Jesus, but, man, I got this stuff going on in my heart. What's Jesus talking about? The worries of the world, right? Fear, worry, anxiety, all that kind of stuff. And and Jesus told us in another passage, he told us something about such hearts, cluttered hearts. He said, nobody can serve what? Two masters. He says, you're going to follow one and deny the other, basically, is, that's my paraphrase. You're going to serve one and you're going to neglect the other. And specifically in that verse, he said, you cannot serve God and stuff. One or the other will have the driver's seat in our lives. And Jesus says, every time the word is sown, we've got to understand that some of us, we're having this battle. Yeah, I want Jesus, but I also want my fill-in-the-blank. And One of them's going to win, and one of them's going to lose. 
Hard soil, hard hearts. Rocky soil, shallow hearts. Thorny soil, cluttered hearts. And then he, at last, of course, talks about the one we should all be shooting for and be longing for, good soil, which is open hearts, right? Open hearts. Verse 20, these are the ones on whom seed was sown in good soil. They are the ones who, they hear the word and they accept it and they bear fruit. 30, 60, and 100 fold. You know, in those days I read, a, a good crop was considered a five fold crop, six fold, tenfold. Man, you were off the charts. It was a banner year. Jesus says, No, those who hear my word and respond to it and accept it by faith, 30, 60, 100 fold, big time stuff. It's an exciting promise. And, and Jesus is saying that there's such a person, those of us who are willing and conscious to approach the teaching and the preaching and the study of God's word with an open heart, he's saying, good things will follow. I'm not talking about health and wealth. I'm saying Christ-like character. Look at what it talks about elsewhere. Sometimes, sometimes do a word study in the Bible of what it means to bear fruit. What is spiritual fruit? Christ-like character, making disciples, right? Uh, learning to, uh, to, to serve God and one another in ways of eternal significance. Jesus said, man, when your heart is open, God's going to work. And it's going to be greater than anything any one of us can imagine. And, and put, when you put it all together, that's the point of this parable. Simply this, I said it already, not everyone who hears God's word is going to respond to it the same way. What we do with it comes down to the condition of our hearts. What we do with it is a matter of the condition of our hearts. And that leads us to the third and the, really the last thing I want to set before you this morning, which is this, the question this parable raises. The, point of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus' parables is to press people to a point of decision. The point of this parable is to say that, hey, we don't all hear God's word. We all hear the same words, but we don't all handle it the same way. Meaning that inevitably, I believe the question this parable raises is a pretty simple one. It's this, how's your heart? This morning, as you sit in this place, how's your heart? Spiritually speaking, what do you think of? And how will you, this isn't theoretical, this is very, very practical and very, very personal. This morning, what are you going to do with what you've just heard? And that doesn't mean just what I've heard. What about communion? What about the songs we've sung, the scriptures that have been read? What you're going to hear in Sunday school in a little while? How's your heart? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond to the things that you are hearing? Because what was true of Jesus' audience, what he's saying here about the crowd on the hillside by the seashore that day listening to him is true in this room as well. Our hearts are in all sorts of different places, and our hearts are in all sorts of different conditions. You may have, uh, have woke up in the same house with the people you're now, you rode here with and you're sitting next to, and their heart may be in a very different place than yours is. This is a personal message, and it's the amazing power of God's word to speak to us in those places. But we're in different conditions, and those conditions shape and determine what we're going to do with the seed that's being sown right now. How's your heart? Let me see if I can break it down. Just do this for about five minutes and then we're done. In keeping with the four soils Jesus spoke of here, let me just try to turn the four soils into four questions, okay? And I'm not saying all four questions apply to every person. I'm saying that one of these questions probably applies to you in the same way one of them probably applies to me. But in keeping with those soils, here's four questions to consider. Number one, given the analogy or the, our understanding of what Jesus meant when he talked about hard soil, here's my first question this morning. Have you truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ? As you sit in this room this morning, have you truly placed your faith 
in Jesus. Have you just, here's what I mean. Have you decided for yourself that he really did die for your sin? That he really did rise on your behalf? And that the offer of salvation is made to you so that you could be saved? Now listen to me very, very closely. I am not asking the question. Say, he's not asking. I am not asking, do you believe in God? I am not asking, say he's not asking. I'm not asking, do you believe God is good? I'm guessing, simply by virtue of the fact that you're here, most of us are probably in that camp. We believe that God is real, and we probably believe he is good. That's not what I'm asking, because that's not salvation. That's not redemption. That's the framework. We've got to have that begin in that place. I'm asking whether you have made a conscious decision to repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ. I'm not asking, do you enjoy coming to church? I'm asking, do you believe in Jesus? And do you call him my Savior? If not, you're hard soil, but God can break up. Amen. Praise God, hard soil. He's done it for all of us so far, many of us here today. He can do it. Have you truly trusted Jesus Christ? Second, corresponding to the analogy or the picture of rocky soil, do you, when, when God's word is open, when it's taught, maybe when you look at it and study it on your own by yourself, do you respond to the Lord with more than just emotion? Is your response to, to the Lord and what his word says more than emotional? Now listen, I believe with all my heart that our feelings can and our emotions should be involved in every spiritual decision and every spiritual experience we have. If, if you have no emotion, I don't think you're paying attention, right? If you're fighting, I'm not going to be emotional, I'm not going to get swept up in that. I think that that's a different heart problem condition. I think our emotions are part of it, but here's what I am saying, because I think this is, if I understand, this is what Jesus is saying. If all we have is an emotional response, when God's word is preached or when we gather for worship, listen, when life gets hard, Jesus is what he's saying here, or when it just gets busy, you know what? Some other less noble emotions are going to seize control, and they're going to divide and conquer your heart and probably convince you that all that God stuff isn't as real as I thought it was on Sunday morning, right? He's not really with me. He doesn't really love me. It's what Satan did in the garden. Has God really said these things are true? Is your response one of the, the heart in terms of faith and decision? Is it more than just emotion? Are you willing to let the roots sink deep? Third, corresponding to the analogy of thorny soil. And I know this is the one that, man, I grapple with every day. What competes most fiercely against your devotion to Jesus? What is it in your life? I mean, it it needs a name. It needs a label so you know what it is and you can see it coming. Because no one's exempt. I think it's Peter who says that, that all these are various lusts that wage war against our soul. He's talking to believers. What wages war against your soul? What competes for your devotion to Jesus? What I'm asking is what Jesus said in verse 19, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for stuff brings something specific to mind. That if you were honest, even though you wouldn't want to say it out loud, that's really what kind of sits most of the time on the throne of your heart. What competes most fiercely? Listen, the, 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 the fierceness, the competition is a reality. I don't think you should feel guilty that there are things that compete with the affection of your heart. I'm saying, what do you do with it? How do you respond to it? Do you surrender again and again to Jesus? 
And are, are you willing to wage war in your soul against those desires and say, maybe they're even good desires, maybe they're even healthy desires, but they are nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ and walking with him. And then finally, corresponding to the good soil, what do you expect when you show up on Sunday morning? What do you really expect when you come on Sunday morning? When you gather with us for prayer on Wednesday night? When you go to your Bible study, your small group, your prayer circle? What do you really expect? Do you come? Here's what I'm asking. As I think we should with an attitude of anticipation and expectation. that Hey, maybe the music will be good, maybe not so much. Maybe the preaching will be riveting and maybe it'll be sort of an endurance run. <laughs> but that's not why I'm coming. I'm coming because... In the company of other people, I get to meet with the living God of heaven and earth who promises that when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. Who says, if if you'll come and seek me, you will find me. If you knock, I'm going to open the door. Do you show up with that attitude on Sunday morning? Do you show up with that attitude on Wednesday night of anticipation and expectation and really believing that when we have a personal encounter with him, he really does change us? Is that what you believe? Is that what we is that what we expect when we meet together as his people? Because here's the thing. What we've looked at here this morning in Mark chapter 4, I said it already, and, and for 2,000 years, most people have thought and referred to this story and even labeled it the parable of the sower. That's what I called it when we started. That's not what it is. You know what this really is? This is the parable of the soils. What Jesus really gave us here is a parable of the soils. Because it's really about, because what's the purpose of a parable? To press us to a point of decision. It's a parable of the soils. Because that's what's really at issue here. What's going on in our hearts? And it's why the big idea of the parable, and really the big idea of the message this morning, is this, and I believe this with all my heart, that every time we open the Bible, it's a moment of decision. Every time we open God's Word, it's a moment of decision. It's an opportunity to grow. To, to trust him more deeply or to, to push him away, to, to willingly surrender or to stubbornly resist, to say in few or many words somehow in my heart, what I'm hearing actually really matters or what I'm hearing makes no difference to me. But every time we open the Bible, it's an hour of decision, a moment of decision. And so with that reality, because that's what Jesus is saying here, and perhaps just with some of the questions I've just asked you to consider, let's pray. Because, Father, we really do want to believe and we need to and do, in fact, Lord, trust and identify. We, we realize when we think about it, Father, that what Jesus is saying here is so very, very true, that the word is the same, but it's a matter of our hearts. Father, I am so grateful that every Sunday morning when we walk into this place, that you already know our hearts, that none of us is here by accident, that you have a unique purpose and plan and, and, and message and application for each one of us as we worship and study your word. Father, there's no way that I could ever, any preacher could ever discern and much less speak to the needs and conditions of each heart, but, but you're saying that your word is so powerful and your spirit is so personal that you can take ordinary words spoken by an ordinary person, Lord, and use them to, to deal with the deeper things of our hearts. 
Father, I lift up to you this morning those among us with hard hearts. Father, whether they're hostile or indifferent, may this be the moment when the quietness of their own heart they say, Lord Jesus, I repent, I believe. Be my Savior. Father, I pray for those of us here this morning with shallow hearts. Father, who've been riding the wave of emotion, and we wonder why life is so hard and our faith seems so, seems so inconsistent because we really haven't taken the time to let our spiritual roots, so to speak, sink deeply into your word. Lord, you've pressed us to steps of faith. And Lord, as we all do at times, we've shrunk back from them. Father, help those whose hearts are shallow this morning to just take a step forward and say, Lord, what you ask of me today, this week, in the coming days, I, I will do. Father, I pray for those of us, Lord, so many of us with cluttered hearts. Father, we're worried about one thing or another. We're consumed with the pursuit of more. We're jealous of the person we know who has what we want and we think we're never going to get and we won't be happy until we do and then we get it and we aren't. Father, that we would choose to treasure Jesus above all things. And then, Father, even in our remaining just few moments together through the remainder of this day, I pray that all of us, Father, we would cultivate open hearts, that we'd look for you in our circumstances, the ordinary and the spectacular, that we would expect you to speak to us when we open up our Bibles and we listen to it being taught. Father, that even now as we stand in a moment to sing a final song, that some way in our hearts we'll say, Lord, if there's anything else you want to say to me, if there's anything else you want to impress upon me, if there's someone I need to serve or forgive or whatever it is, we'll say yes, because our hearts are open and you promise a harvest that is beyond all imagination. Father, take the things of truth which are spoken here this morning and seal them in our hearts forever and let all the rest slip away so that our eyes are fixed only on Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.